Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that brings behavioral science to life. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. In this episode, we got to catch up with one of our favorite practitioners, Evelyn Gosnell. We met Evelyn a bunch of years ago at a conference in San Francisco, and we finally, we finally caught up with her for this episode. Finally, finally is right. (laughs) There you go. Uh, You should know that Evelyn is a managing director at Irrational Labs and a frequent speaker in behavioral economics and consumer psychology. She's an expert in helping companies use the science of decision making to better understand how people think and behave and thereby creating better products and better services for them. And what I found interesting about this episode, Tim, at least in my own humble opinion, is how Evelyn and her team are using behavioral science to solve some of the big, wicked problems that plague us, like Mm. obesity Mm -hmm. to misinformation. It's just fascinating to me. And behavioral science, I think, can provide insight into how to improve the products and services that we use to combat these ills. And that's what Evelyn and her team are doing. Oh, yeah. And not only in this episode about applying behavioral science to product and design, it is about the process of behavioral science can lead to a greater understanding for businesses. Yeah. And aside from taking care to focus on client projects that she can talk about outside of work in this episode, yeah. we found that Evelyn cares a great deal about the design of the intervention. And if you're going to use the powers of behavioral science, use them for good. <laughs> I like the voice on that. And I, you know, this is, we, we believe in this, of course. Yes, use, it's, it's, you know, use the superpowers. With great power comes great responsibility. You need to use these powers for good. And uh, I think that just resonates throughout this. So, with that, uh, listeners, we hope that you sit back with your big, wicked problem concoction and listen to our episode with Evelyn Gosnell. Evelyn Gosnell, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. We are so excited to have you. And, of course, we start with a speed round, so we have to ask the most important question of all the speed round questions, iced (laughs) coffee or latte? A latte, but pro tip with my lattes, uh, I only allow myself maximum every other day. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. Keep it a treat. Otherwise, you all know this, right? We hedonically adapt. We no longer fully enjoy the deliciousness of a latte if we allow ourselves to indulge. Oh, (laughs) pro tip. I like this. I like this uh, self kind of deprecate, you know, kind of keeping things away so that we enjoy. I should do that with ice cream, although I don't have that problem with enjoying (laughs) ice cream, regardless if I have it for every meal. Um, But my wife would say, you should, you should probably, you know, every other day would be good for you. (laughs) Maybe every other, you know, meal might be good for you. Um, All right. Sorry. We're going to go on. Uh, Would you rather spend a week at the ocean or a week in the desert at Burning Man? Burning Man. (laughs) How many times have you been? I've actually only been twice, but I, it's an amazing enough experience that I'm all in. Wow. You're all in. I would, it it has been on Tim's radar for a long time and he's kind of convinced me that it's something that I should put on my radar as well. So you would, you would recommend? You all will have to join. Yeah, there's a very uh, wonderful paper on the findings of, of Burning Man, actually. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but um, really nice effects in terms of 
increase in openness and generosity and all the things that I experienced myself in real life. I'm like, yep, now there's a paper. See, it's real. Oh, wow. We're going there. We're, 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 we're going to uh, confirmation bias on parade right now because I'm going to, I'm going to be looking for that. Um, okay. Next speed round question. Is it better for weight loss to get on a very exact scale every single day to track my progress or should I give it some time between weigh-ins? Uh, that is a question that I'd like to answer more broadly okay. in the show. You go right ahead. You go right ahead. Jump on yeah, in. We can, we, we'll, we'll take, we'll take some time on this one. Yeah. Okay. So I think there's two parts to it. You asked about the scale. Um, so what I want to talk to you about is a product called Shapea. This mm-hmm. is something that I worked on with Dan Ariely, and it was really a zero to one process. Uh, so imagine, you know, a lot of times our work at Irrational Labs, we're working with companies on a product that already exists or a feature that already exists and getting more people to use it, et cetera. This is a very different project where we said, how should we, if we're solving for the big problem of Obesity, uh, you know, because we're we're ambitious. Let's let's yeah, attack the big, a big one. societal problems and say before we go designing a product, let's understand the psychological landscape of what's actually happening here, and let's do a literature review. There's no need to re- reinvent the wheel, and what has already been studied in this space. So it turns out, first thing is stepping on the st- scale daily is correlated with weight loss. Mm. It's especially so, by the way, if you do it in the morning versus the evening. Any guesses as to why? We weigh less in the morning. <laughs> <That's nice. laughs> it sets up our day. We know, like, oh, there we go. I have to. I, I, I'm. It's now primed in my in in my memory so that it is more readily available as opposed to getting to sleep on it and forgetting about it in my dreams. Kurt, brilliant. Ha, Tim, um, got I, you. Ha. I thought my answer was pretty great. <laughs> it is. I, I do weigh less in the morning. So. so you step on the scale in the morning and imagine the next thing you're doing, right, is maybe breakfast. What's your likelihood of having a donut versus oatmeal? And sort of the rest of the day kind of continues. Whereas at night, you're exactly right. We kind of forget. And by the next day, there's um, no effects. Okay. So we have that data point. Very helpful. Now, we also know about one of the big principles in behavioral science, which is loss aversion. So loss aversion generally tells us that, and this is a little hard to explain in the context of weight loss because it's opposite, up and down. But generally, when we gain, let's say, 20 bucks, we're not as happy as we lose, as uh, losing 20 bucks, right? It's about a double effect. We're twice as sad as we were happy. Now, Let's do the little weird exercise of flipping it with weight loss and gain. Our, our weight does normally, it's, it's very normal for it to fluctuate uh, daily for women, especially uh, depending on their menstrual cycle. It's normal for, for fluctuation. But we interpret a three pound gain much worse than a three pound loss. What that means is if we step on the scale daily, our net relationship with the scale, as you can imagine, <laughs> is negative. You're like, no way. I'm putting this away. I hate you. So it's very hard to marry kind of these two things together. I'll add that the third piece of kind of literature findings is that we're really bad. This is out of Duke University. We're really bad at understanding how much our behaviors impact weight loss or gain. So Kurt, Mm -hmm. if you eat ice cream tonight, 
<laughs> uh, what probably is going to happen. So just, uh, yeah, there we go. When you eat ice cream tonight. <laughs> so you might expect that the next day or maybe the day after that, you might see a tiny uh, bump up in weight. This is on average what people think. And then on the other hand, if they eat a salad or they go for, you know, a three mile run, they expect the scale to, you know, show the effects of that behavior very quickly. And that's just not how the body works. It is a much more delayed system. So what this means is a scale is not a great feedback mechanism for how our the tool and our human psychology don't match. So that's why we built, drum roll here, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> a numberless scale, a scale that you step on every single day, but that actually doesn't show you your weight. Instead, it shows you uh, color. So there's a five-point scale, and there's five different colors that you can get, depending on if your weight is just on average the same. So what we're doing is we're using standard. There's a lot of nerdy math behind it. Uh, standard deviations to understand if, on average, you're in the same range or you're kind of going up or going down, and then the, the color kind of tells you that. Yeah, I think that it sounds kind of radical, but it does beg an underlying question – why is it that the way that we think about our weight and the way that our body actually deals with weight different? Uh, I would guess that this is just an evolutionary thing. You know, we were built many years ago to it, it was in our interest to kind of stock up on food. It was a very different kind of landscape that we live in. So our, our human bodies now into today's modern world are not really well built for it. Yeah. And it, it is interesting when we we take away that input versus output, basically, right? What we eat or what we do from an exercise perspective and that output from that isn't the immediate gratification. Uh, it's the gratification of eating the ice cream and all that. But the the output of the, the weight gain that we get from that is delayed, that the association between those two gets kind of separated and which is what you've just kind of identified. And again, I, I felt this exact same thing when you were talking about that, that idea that, oh, I just, I did, I went to the gym yesterday. I should see the weight loss to, you know, on the scale in the morning. And yet I know that. I know that rationally that that doesn't the case. Yet I still kind of go, oh, oh, it's not there, you know, and then you have that, that sense of, all right. The expectation I have, there's a loss from the expectation of what I thought it was going to be. Even if I didn't gain weight, it is still a loss. I, I didn't lose the two pounds that I go, but I, I burned off 345 calories on the treadmill. You know, it's, at least that's what it said. So those are very different uh, kind of components. And I love the idea of being able to use that information to understand the human psyche, to build products that are going to help achieve the outcome that we want. And that's basically what you're you're trying to do with this, right? Yeah. And we did it. We, of course, as proper behavioral scientists, needed to measure our results. So we, we ran a trial. Um, and to make things a little hard on ourselves, so we really wanted to prove we chose a challenging population to move the needle for. So it was we were able to partner with a company. They had four call centers distributed across the United States, mostly in middle America. Of lower education, lower income level, uh, largely primarily a, an obese population. And we did a random assignment where some people got a regular scale and some people got this shape of scale. Um, sadly, it was only a 12 week trial. 
of course, the nerd in me would have liked to, to run it longer. But even just within 12 weeks, we saw in the treatment group, so the people who got Shapa, a loss of 0.65% of their body weight. Mm-hmm. And here's the kicker. In the control, we saw a gain of 0.22% of their body weight. So that's the thing is just, you know, when you have an obese population, you know, it's just slowly moving more and more over time up. Yeah. And so this was, a, a, a you know, again, only 12 weeks. I would have loved to run this even longer because I think that's where it's really interesting and important to see the effects there. But we saw very positive um, effects uh, in, in that 12 week trial. Way to go. Are there any unexpected findings? Come to think of it. Yes, there was a very big thing that we did not expect. We landed on a market that we did not anticipate. So we were thinking about obesity and weight loss and weight management. Um, and that's why we landed on this five point scale and this numberless, you know, this whole design. After we launched, it turned out that there was a market, there was users who were anorexic or bulimic and who also found value in not seeing the their weight. Their goal was the opposite, where they slowly wanted to gain weight. Um, but the psychological effects of looking on look at the Gethic scale are even more dramatic for them than the average person. So uh, we ended up launching a whole mode, a very, we had to invert in the product, uh, the, you know, gain and, and loss. The color uh, schemes are, were reversed, yeah. So that was a pretty unexpected, you know, I wish I could say, like, we knew from the outset. <laughs> but that's the, yeah. that's the wonderful thing about some of these impacts is that the psychology behind it apply to to more than just that specific component. And so obviously context matters and various different aspects of that are all part of this. But I could see the same psychological concepts uh, or that you're talking about that, you know, daily fluctuation on, on weight and different pieces. But you could you could apply that in other situations and other types of products and other things. That, and again, you know, we talk about uh, exercise and various different things, but you could probably have a tracker about your exercise as opposed to how many minutes I exercised. Is this something that's a, it's in the green versus red and different aspects around that? Do you find that that is indeed the case or, or am I way off base here and go, no, everything is kind of individualized and you need to make sure that you're applying things. Obviously you have to apply it right, but you know, the general principles are there. Is that? Yeah. A lot of the general principles there. I think what you said is right about context yeah. mattering. Right. So, you know, I mean, we see things like, Streaks. We we did we built a streak uh, within Shapa about stepping on the scale daily. We wanted that to be a thing, but we also needed to be very careful about the loss of breaking a streak yeah. because that's people you know uh, stop entirely. So we in the dashboard we created the streak, but we also used a lot of other things. You know, Shapa member since this date. So identity, leaning into all these other things that you've done rather than singularly focusing on the street because we, it's like, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, that's interesting. And I've seen other products where they give you a, a free roll kind of day too. Like you can miss a yeah. streak, but you can apply, you get, you get a free roll a month or a week or whatever yeah. that would be. And you can apply that to that. So again, you don't lose that, the power totally. of the streak and various different pieces of that. But that, that comes in with, the application of behavioral science into into work. And I know with the work that you do um, at Irrational Labs, you get to do lots of fun projects. So 
what's one of the fun, and I know you can't talk about a lot of them, but what, what's a fun project that you could talk to us about some cool things? Okay. So I'm going <laughs> to, your question is really interesting because I'm going to say TikTok and misinformation. So I don't know if that fits yeah, the definition yeah. of fun. <laughs> TikTok is like my, it's, it's a very fun but, tool, right? The misinformation part of it, maybe not yeah. so much, but the TikTok part. So there we go. We'll take that. <laughs> okay. So TikTok contacted us uh, for this big, big societal challenge of misinformation and what can we do to reduce it. Now, it's very simple to know what to do with outright misfalsehoods, right? Yeah. So if you went onto TikTok today and you said children cannot get COVID, your video would be taken down. That's fairly straightforward. The problem with the misinformation space is that so much of it is more in that gray area. So now there's millions of video. What do we do with those? And that's the question. So we applied the behavioral design process, just like I described in Shapa. We applied it here. So first, looking at a literature review, what's already been researched in the field. And then second, deeply understanding the lay of the land, the user context, kind of mapping all of the steps of how the user is currently using the product. And you're kind of overlaying these two. You're trying to come design solutions. You're, uh, you know, hypothesis driven solutions. And then you're going to test them in the, we pre-tested them on MTurk and then we tested them in product, uh, academics would say in the field. Um, so starting with the literature review, I would say there's two big components there. One is looking specifically at the research on misinformation. Okay. Again, no need to reinvent the wheel. There's lots of brilliant researchers who have looked at this. Gordon Pennycook and David Rand in particular have wonderful insights about uh, what they call an accuracy prompt. So what they find is it turns out that we really do value accuracy. 73% of people say that accuracy is a top priority when choosing what to share on social media. Now, Kurt, how much do you value accuracy? Uh, very much, right? I mean, I think it's part of being a scientist in, in the first place, but just as a person, it's really, really good. So Great. So, and my next question is, how much do you walk around in the world and interact? And at the top of your head, you remind yourself and you're thinking about accuracy. I care about accuracy. I care about accuracy. <laughs> very little. Very, very little. Not one of those things that I'm going, oh, wow, is how accurate is that actually? Yeah, not at all. No. So it turns out that that's the big thing, is that if we remind people at the right time, what we call a just-in-time intervention, right, a just-in-time notification, that's where the power of this can be. Um, so in their study, they found that evaluating a single headline for accuracy decreases intent to share false headlines. So mm. they, they tested these crazy uh, headlines like over 500 migrant caravanners arrested with suicide vests, things like that. Getting people to pause and evaluate for accuracy, making that reminder, that prompt of bringing it, I guess, salient can be effective in reducing the propensity to then actually share uh, this content. So that's finding number one, right? This idea of accuracy cool. prompts. Second finding, I would say, is just a broader thing that we relied on from behavioral science overall, which is very simple that we all know that when we want people to do more of a behavior, we make it easy. We When, when we want them to do less of it, we make it slightly hard. Tiny, tiny frictions, even that matters. So, what we wanted to do was make it harder to share potential misinformation. Hmm. So that's 
that's the we wanted to slow people down. So if you if you look at TikTok users, have you either of you observed? Do you have kids <laughs> looking at? No. I, I I have a I have a daughter who uh, TikTok is the main uh, kind of place where she goes online. That's what you know. For many many months at the dinner time, it was like, so what did you learn in school? What did you learn on TikTok? That was kind of the two different questions that we asked. Oh wow. Um, yeah. So we combined these two things to say, let's design an intervention. One, which is a label on this, these videos that get flagged for potential misinformation, right? We look, let's design a label on the video, which is an accuracy prompt. Um, and then second, if and when they go to click share, let's put a pop up. Let's remind them about accuracy, but also just ask something like, you know, are you sure? And all this serves as, as, as a tiny friction. As a potential slowing mechanism, you may be in a hot state. I'm going, I'm consuming this, especially misinfo content can be, you know, more hot state, uh, put you more into hot state, slow you down um, and reduce the propensity to share. So in this process, we pre-tested it, pre-tested all these different variants of the copy on MTurk. And then interesting finding there, by the way, was that no significant differences. We played around with so many different wordings. Turns out no, no big uh, effects there and then launched uh, it in product. So launched a control group with no intervention and then launched the, the intervention group that had the label and the friction. So the label said caution video flag for unverified content. And then there was a friction point on the, if they so what did you guys observe button. now when you actually bring it to the real world, you're actually throwing it out. Now it's not just a test. What kind of results did you see? We're quite proud of our results there. Excited that, you know, we, we, the biggest finding was that we reduced shares by 24%. Ooh, yeah. So we cared most about shares because that's by definition, like spread of misinformation, potential misinformation. That was 24% reduction. And we reduced views by 5% and likes by 7%. Though, I mean, given the millions and millions uh, of, uh, of postings, that's meaningful. Those are really meaningful results. I, I'm hoping there was like a big collective round of high fives in the office <laughs> when you guys saw that. There was, you know, it's always funny working with uh, companies because, uh, you, you know, from the academic side and the company side, there's a bit of a gap of like, no, this finding is really huge. Yeah. Like 20% versus like a lot of studies we're really proud of yeah. like 5%. It's just kind of bringing the client along for and contextualizing that a little bit. Um, but but yet, yeah, TikTok was thrilled with this. This did roll out globally as a product feature as a result of this work. That's fantastic. Okay, Evelyn, you had some unexpected findings from the Shapa. What were the unexpected findings from TikTok? Anything? I'll tell you a couple of things that surprised us. So one has to do with how we set up the experiment. And so we actually had two conditions that we tested. So we had a control group and two slightly different conditions. So we talked about the fact that there was a label on the video and we talked about the, the pop-up that showed up if you went to click share. And this was the case for both interventions. What was different was the timing with which the label appeared on the video. Mm. Now, why did we do that? So if we look again at TikTok uh, users, you know, playing with TikTok, they decide pretty quickly in the first few seconds whether they're going to watch a video. And if not, they just swipe it up, right? Swipe. 
but there's a decision point that happens in the first few seconds. So what we didn't want to do is create curiosity about the video because, oh, what's this new label thing? Ah. Now I'm going to watch it. We did not want to have an unintended consequence of accidentally increasing views. (laughs) Yeah, right. So we we had one condition delay the appearance of the label by three seconds. Now, the surprising effect was there was no difference between the conditions. But you tried it. You tested it. We tried it. it. Yeah. And you did not kill the cat. Right. So, I, I mean, I think that's part of the beauty of behavioral science is actually coming up with what might be called a null result. Is is that fair? I was instructive. Yeah. In, it, it was informative. That was an important part of the of the story to know what won't work or what won't make a difference uh, as equally as it is to understand what will make a difference. Exactly. And ideally, right, publishing these findings. I w- it, it's such a wonderful thing when companies – um, are brave enough to say we're running these tests and we want to share the results because guess what? There's other social media companies that it's for the greater good that we publish these findings. Um, the other surprising effect that we found was that there was an age effect. So it was age seemed to amplify the effect of the banner. So for users who are 35 plus uh, on TikTok, which is <laughs> what, what about 10 people on TikTok <laughs> above 35 plus? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Old in, in air quotes, uh, <laughs> plus. Um, but it reduced likes by 17% and reduced shares by 34%. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And that's interesting because, again, when we think about the those assumptions that we make, well, would I make that assumption that an older uh, cohort would be more likely to have an effect with these interventions versus not? And I, don't know if I would have made that assumption going into this. So uh, interest. I, I love those findings. So, all right, moving on. You get to work with a lot of great companies and applying behavioral science inside of those organizations. What are some of the findings that you have about how, how do you get companies to apply, to utilize behavioral science? Because obviously you run into roadblocks as anybody does as you're working from an outside at, People may not believe in it. They may not know about it, whatever the, whatever the issues are, budget, all those different factors. So what are some of the roadblocks that you run into? And what are some of the things that you actually find actually enhance or, or make it easier to, to have companies say, yeah, we should be looking at this from a behavioral science perspective? Yeah, I think one roadblock is that people may think that behavioral science you know, needs to be this, you need to go get this whole PhD in this, in this field to be able to, to add value and, and make product improvements. And we, I can send you this, this link afterwards. Maybe you can put it in the show notes. We have a whole piece that's on being a behavioral product manager rather than just a regular ah. product manager. So if you are in a product role, it could be product manager, it could be design, it could even be on the research side, you can influence, you can, you can take insights from behavioral science. Our, our website has a lot of resources. We've also made things simple. So we have a simple, simplified framework. We call it the 3B framework, where we say, first, define the behavior that you're solving for. Right? You can't change behavior unless you land on, and you all agree, this is the behavior that we're changing. And then two, again, very, probably oversimplified from an academic standpoint, but from a, if you're launching this within a company, it creates a shared language or shared approach. So the two other Bs are reducing barriers. 
and increasing benefits. Mm. And so a lot of psychologies fall into this. So you could imagine adding social proof, right, is a benefit. Yeah. You're now creating a motivation to do this behavior. So we we have uh, a lot of uh, cheat sheets that we've made on this to say, here is a cycle. Here's the behavioral science toolkit. Um, and I think the important thing with companies is showing an early, I think two things, showing an early win, right? Having some small change that you can implement using behavioral science and showing uh, a positive effect. Often this is done with an email because it's one of the easiest places to make tweaks. Um, and then having a simplified framework that you can teach within a company, a, a shared language, a shared approach. Mm, love that. I love the idea of that shared language because, again, when you're working inside an organization, we often assume, and uh, maybe you guys don't, but I, I often assume, and I think Tim often assumes, you know, that these are just no, n- normal kind of conversation things. But the, you talked about loss aversion earlier. Not everybody knows what loss aversion is. And if you just make that assumption and you're using this language, you're losing people because, again, they're not necessarily going to say, hey, stop. Can you explain what loss aversion is? Uh, and you're just going to lose them because they, they don't necessarily understand what you're trying to achieve. And so that in and of itself, I think, is just a fantastic component. Well, it just it's such a shorthand, like when we actually understand the words that that's the other person is using, when we understand them, that make, goes a long way to being effective in communication. Yeah. I was on a call this morning with a couple hundred people and someone was doing a presentation. They were using these acronyms and and I'm relatively new to the organization and I I didn't know what they were. I'm making notes and thinking, OK, I got to follow up. But someone raised their hand and said so uh, to the presenter and said, so what does this acronym mean? And the presenter said, actually, I'm not sure. I thought, wow. <laughs> So grateful that somebody asked the question. Let's actually make sure that the language that we use is actually common. That's a big damn deal. I thought that. Yeah. I I would also add, just thinking about this more, it's so powerful when you can make a small change and have a big effect. Now, that isn't always the case, of course. Um, But I can give you one example of a company that we worked with um, where we made. Relative, some relatively small changes with with massive impact. So uh, this company is called Tito Care. It's in the telehealth space. So have you, have either of you had during COVID times? Oh, of health? course. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. how we live. That's how we got by. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, telehealth is in, an, an increasing trend, um, which is probably a very good thing, right? If we think about unnecessary visits to the emergency room to urgent care, it's solving a need. And Care is this wonderful product because you're having a telehealth visit, but it's actually also a physical product. It's a device, and you can do various medical tests on yourself. So an ear exam, heart, et cetera, temperature. There's various things that you can do. So during your telehealth visit, your doctor can immediately make a diagnosis because they're reading the results uh, that are, are, are coming in and prescribe you medication or, you know, give you a treatment plan or, um, you know, sometimes you actually may need to come into yeah, urgent yeah. care. Yeah. That call, it's a wonderful product, especially for parents with little kids, because you can imagine your kid is sick, they're screaming. Yeah. You have to do the whole production of like getting them in the car seat, going to uh, urgent care. You get there, they're like, oh, you've had an ear infection. Yeah. You know, yeah. the same thing you could virtually. So it's, it's a wonderful product for that. But at the time they contacted us, 
people weren't using this device, right? So they were getting it, they were ordering it, it would arrive to their home, and then it would just sit on the shelf collecting dust. And this is where behavioral science can come in and say, look, the behavioral insight here is, the psycho- one of the psychologies involved is present bias. Mm-hmm. The thing arrives, you got other things to do, Kurt has ice cream to eat. Yep. yep. <laughs> That's for sure. Of course. Of course. Uh, and so you're busy, and so you don't necessarily fiddle with it. The, the device does need to be paired with your phone. It needs to be set up on the Internet. It's fairly simple, but it is a thing that you need to do. And so the insight is you're not going to do it. You're, you know, people weren't necessarily doing it then. And when their kid was sick, that was not the time. You've got the screaming child. It's not going to be like, let me open this, but let right. me figure out how to do all this, and how do I do this year exam? I've never done it before. That's not the moment. So people stick with their existing habit of just going to urgent care or the emergency right, room. Right. So what we did there was we created an insert and it said, call this number to activate your device. Technically, <laughs> it would work. Anyway. <laughs> but what we're doing is we're creating a model where this is now a thing. Activation is now a thing. So that you now call in and they just on the phone help you just pair. You, you, you know, run them through real, real time. Yeah. All right. To activate yeah. this, let's make sure we pair it up and et cetera. Ah, that is brilliant. Okay. That was, that was an insert into the packaging. The packaging had already been set and approved by the, like everything was in motion. We just created this single insert. And so by that alone, uh, increased device pairing by 90%. <laughs> that, that's oh. a, just a minor. Minor increase. Wow. So, you know, I, I could see where maybe the, the company is happy with that. Yeah. I, lo- I love those kinds of things. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Evelyn, you were going to say, say more? No, I think it's just that uh, that's an example of sometimes you can get this Big. You know, win by small change. Yeah. yeah. After that, we were able to make more changes, such as we created now a norm of saying you should do a practice visit. Ah. We made that a thing. Practice visits so you get familiar. We also made this cool. cute um, uh, coloring. We gamified for kids. So imagine just like telling a user, make sure to practice how to do an ear exam and a heart exam. And yeah. no, no, no. Boring. We made a coloring page where they get, the kid got to like check off which one, which ones they had practiced. Um, so it's just to nudge this behavior, this mental model of like, I want to do a practice exam. Yeah. And overall, big picture, increased utilization of the product by 128%. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Unexpected findings on this one? Any any from that one? This is all right. <laughs> this is like, the, no, we, we anticipated all of these. All right. <laughs> Uh, that, that's pretty fantastic. We always have to ask, though, a little bit about your musical preferences. If you found yourself stuck on a desert island for a year, what two musical artists would you would you want to take along with you? That's a great question. I think I need to give you a little bit of background on myself first, if that's okay. That's fine. Yes. yes. So, and I feel bad saying this, not that I'm anti-music, but I... I was raised by an Asian tiger mom. We were, my parents were diplomats. We moved around to lots of different countries. Uh, we were in the Soviet Union, Russia for many years. And so my mother was determined that we were, so we went to Soviet schools. We learned Russian and she was determined, you know, the music quality was so great there. So we went to uh, piano class and flute and music yeah. theory and music history and all these things. And it was so intense. She would. <laughs> I would practice piano and she'd have her 
uh, wooden spoon from the kitchen, and if you make a mistake, you know. Oh you my know. gosh! Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So. So you still love the piano, right? You, you adore it. Is that is that what you're telling us? You're leading up to the unexpected findings that you turned into a huge piano fan. Yeah, so we're a little bit uh, distant. I will say, I would probably be like, find me some track from Burning Man. Let me live that vibe, and I think okay. that would probably be that would be okay. that would be good. Oh man, that it's interesting though. Like the early, we we know this, right? We know this from research is that our early experiences with music influence our our later component. That is research that shows that most people, when you ask them when they get to our age, Tim and I are much older than you, um, but you know you're, you're like the musical preferences are kind of usually in that formative years, those teen to preteen years. And that's the music that you still love. And you're going, really? I mean, there's been many decades since then for Tim and I, and uh, that, that isn't the case, but obviously, you know, when you pair it with some negative reinforcement, that might not necessarily be the best way to get somebody (laughs) to love the piano. So for all our parents out there, just remember that if you want to make your kids love piano, uh, you know, let them enjoy it. So, <laughs> Evelyn Gosnell, thank you so much for being a guest on Behavioral Groups today. We hope you will return and uh, and continue our conversation at, at some point in the future. But thanks for being a guest today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, nerding out about behavioral science is my favorite thing. So you you <laughs> you fit in well with this crew. Fit in well. All right. Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Evelyn, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our wicked problem minds. I love that. Ever since I got introduced to this, to this concept of working on wicked problems, I'm still just in love with it. Was... <laughs> just the idea, right? The idea that, no, we're not just talking little things. We're talking big, wicked problems and and it was it was interesting when when Evelyn was starting to talk about the idea of hey we work on misinformation and obesity and like those are big ass problems those aren't yeah. like hey how do i get you know somebody to clip my fingernails easier or better i don't know i don't know where that came from <laughs> i, I want to know who clips your fingernails <laughs> just leave you don't me have to somebody that. clip your fingernails oh man Ixnay. uh but i'm uh <laughs> Uh, there's, there's something that uh, she talked about, uh, using the behavioral science lens and, you know, mm. uh, to explore these big problems. And I love that. And I'm discovering in the corporate gig that I've got now that I'm seeing, and this is, I'm, I'm conflating a conversation that you and I had with Jez Groom also okay. on this when he was talking about what's the difference between a behavioral science lens and the tools of behavioral science. And is there some something evolutionary about that? And I th- am seeing in my experience this, it, it's important to bring the lens on this macro level, to zoom out, to ask the behavioral questions, to think about motivations and feelings and, and the, you know, not just stated preferences, but revealed preferences. Not, not motivations and feelings, Tim. We can't talk about that. <laughs> 
Are you feeling hurt already? <laughs> oh my gosh, that's like personal. Come on, but, but this that's is business. That, we're we're working with those numbers and facts and figures. Well, we, no, I get it. I get it. I'm sorry. I'm and and of course, Stephen Zavidovitz would say, of course, there's data to back that up. So let's look of for the course, data. Of course, there is. But yes. that that lens is important to have, and it's also important to bring the tools to bear. I, and mm-hmm. I think that. Evelyn didn't state this explicitly, but I heard it in the way that she talked about this stuff, that that we need to bring the right tools to the right to solve the right problems. Right. It's not just not everything is confirmation bias. Right. Right. And and the idea of being able to use that lens to help understand what the underlying issue is. Again, I think part of what behavioral science allows us to do is to peel back that onion multiple times and yeah. more in depth than you can do in other ways, right? It, or at least it's the typical way of doing it. And to look to understand, okay, is this a motivation problem at its very core? Is this a understanding problem at its very core? Is it a uh, social norms issue at the core? What are those driving pieces that influence the behavior that you're looking at. And multiple times that these aren't a single issue. They are multiple issues. And so it's understanding the plethora that we have that is influencing our behavior. And that's why these big wicked problems don't, aren't, aren't easy. That's why they're big wicked problems because there are a multitude of inputs that are impacting how people respond. And behavioral that, that lens, as you said, is great because that lens then helps us develop what are the appropriate tools. Beautifully said. Uh, two things I want to say about that. One, you get double bonus points for using plethora in such a wonderful way. So, second, it is about this mix. And, you know, she talked about the, um, you know, the, the process, you know, literature review and hypothesis development, experiment and testing and analyze. This is pretty stock and trade stuff, right? But what I loved about that was when she emphasized the idea of if we don't do the testing, if we don't try this stuff out and go through the literature review and, and think about these things in a systematic way, we might lose out on the opportunity to learn what isn't going to work. Yes. To, right. To, to, to figure out uh, to actually learn within the group that we're trying to influence, what are the things that are not working as well or won't work? Yeah, I think that was a really key piece, right? Let's go back to Edison and what was his quote? You know, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. What? Oh, oh yeah, on the light bulb thing, right? Yeah, the light bulb, right? Yeah, so. Absolutely. What about the, the 3B framework? What did, what did you think about the 3B framework? One of the things is like, I thought I knew every framework out there, but obviously I didn't because this was new to me. So I I love that. I love how simple it is. It's this idea of, all right, what what is it? Behavior barriers benefits. What is the behavior that we're trying to impact? All right. That's a nice way of thinking about this. And it's one of the things that I often in the work that we do with clients is that, you know, the people that are kind of in the weeds, and I'm not saying this, I don't mean to be disparate when I, when I say this, but they often get stuck in the process, often get stuck in, well, this is the piece we're doing. And again, I'm thinking specifically around a lot of the incentive work that we're doing about, well, what should this measure be? And what should this, how do we, uh, you know, what's the weighting on this and what are these things? And we don't often 
take the time when we're in that mode to really step back and say, wait, let's, what is it that we're actually trying to impact here? What is the behavior change that we want the people who are dealing with these incentives are getting these incentives? What do we want them to do? And is that different for top performing people versus middle performers versus the bottom performers? Are there differences in regions? Are there, so taking all of those pieces into account and that behavior piece, I think is really important. And then, you know, barriers. And th- this was something that you talked about at the beginning, uh, before we, you know, started recording this is barriers. It's not always about reducing the barriers. It, it can be about adding in barriers, right? It can slow us down, but sometimes by slowing us down, we might make better decisions. That's, that's right. So having a little bit of friction, uh, and, and God, I have the ghost of Roger Dooley is on my back right now. I can feel him. <laughs> it's like, he's still alive. Friction. He's not a ghost. Well, what I are you know. talking about? <laughs> actually, I was just, I was just talking to Roger recently, actually. So he's on my mind, but yeah, like this is really challenging to think about. There might be a time when increasing a bit of friction by slowing down our decision making might put us a little bit more into a system two thinking mode rather than just the system one automatic way in a good way, you know, in a way that would actually help us. So I'm a big fan of that second B, the the barriers to look at it from both perspectives. Sometimes, most of the time we want to reduce barriers, but there may be times when we want to actually increase barriers. And what I love about the work that Evelyn's doing, and I can, again, I think for our listeners to think about is, you know, when you're designing a, a product or designing a service or designing a program to think about these things, think about what is that behavior, think about the barriers. And then the last piece too, which is gets directly into the work that I do, you yeah. used to do a lot of now, now you're off in I'm corporate off, world and doing yeah. all sorts of, you know, crazy but your, stuff. your but primary work of the, the lantern is, is around, yeah. you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's the benefits, right? It's the, what are you, giving people what is the what is the reason whether that's intrinsic or extrinsic and how do you define that and make sure that people are aware and that it's valuable to them and so what are the benefits that you can add in how do you create this in such a way that people feel the benefits not only see the benefits but feel the benefits which i think is one of the pieces that we often miss out on well said. I couldn't agree more with this idea of feeling the benefits because perceived benefits are just as important as actual benefits. And, yeah. and you could agree more, Tim, but <laughs> you, you choose not to. I'm choosing not to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, overall, though, I think that this 3B framework, this behavior barriers and benefits is a, a really functional and uh, easy to remember, right? It's just three B's. And uh, I want to encourage people to give it a try. You know, put it put it to use. And next time you're in a meeting with with people and they're talking about, you know, whatever the new initiative is or the new product, bring this up, bring out. So what is the behavior? What are the barriers that are going to be in place? Do we need to reduce those? Do we need to add some in? And what are the benefits that people are going to get out of this? And if you can do those three things, I think your your end result is going to be much, much better. Another B. Ooh, ooh, it's the 4B model. We just changed this. I got a patent that. Um, <laughs> Already done. <laughs> Damn it. All right. So that probably let's, before we end up, you know, um, patenting the world away, let's, we should probably wrap this episode up. Agreed. Okay. All right. So I know that I'm 
taking some insights away from this and already applied some of them to the work and particularly some of the work that we've been doing on the journal, the the guided journal brain shift that we've been building on thinking about what is the behaviors that we're trying to drive, bringing in what are the barriers that people have about achieving their goals and, and setting those, those right goals and what are the benefits that they can get out of this really taking that mindset as we were kind of in the final phases when we were putting this together. So it's been really cool. And I've been thinking about the science, you know, behind the the process. I think that was great. Yeah. Uh, brain shift. I'm glad you brought it up. We got to come back to that. We have to talk more about that, uh, first of yeah. all. But you used a lot of behavioral science in the design of, of that journal, didn't you? We did. I mean, and I think that's what helps sets it apart. At least I'm, I'm hoping that's what is. Right. But I mean, the entire journal was designed because we thought, the journals that were out there had, you know, they gave lip service to psychology, to neuroscience, to all of this, but none of them were developed by behavioral scientists who were bringing in the deeper, I mean, every piece of what we were putting together in, in this journal is informed. I mean, it might not be getting into the, some of the deep research, but it's a definitely informed by behavioral science. So, yeah. And I think the the interesting thing about this is is that yeah we use behavioral science in the design of this journal but anybody can use behavioral science when they're developing out a concept a product or a service and I think that is the real lesson. Yeah, and thanks to Evelyn for for making that clear, making that salient for us. And listeners, you know, we hope that you can use these insights this week. The conversation with Evelyn will actually help you go out and find your groove. 